We are starting a brand new sermon series, and it's going to carry us through the month of May. We are looking at the letter of First John. And one of the things you notice about the letter of First John right off the bat is John doesn't follow the normal convention for letter writing uh, during the first century. In fact, he doesn't follow the same example of Paul and some of the others in that he doesn't have a formal introduction and he doesn't have a really tight conclusion at the end of this short letter called 1 John. In fact, as we get into the letter, we realize that there's a kind of urgency just to get to the point. Uh, there, there's a kind of passion that comes through. Uh, there's a repetition that comes through as well. He's a pastor after all, and so he is writing to a church that he's deeply concerned about, and he's concerned because they are facing danger, and he wants to protect them. Well, what's the danger that they're facing? Why is he so uh, urgent to try and write this letter, get it out to them, and protect the church? Well, the danger wasn't persecution, it was seduction. The danger wasn't an external hazard, it was a danger from within the church and within some of the teachings of the church. I love what William Barclay says in his commentary. He says, The trouble which 1 John seeks to com combat did not come from men out to destroy the Christian faith, but from men who thought they were improving it. Let me read that one more time. The trouble which 1 John seeks to combat did not come from men out to destroy the Christian faith, but from men who thought they were improving it. In other words, it wasn't like a Saul of Tarsus going around killing Christians. It wasn't like a Nero in Rome persecuting the Christians. It wasn't an external force trying to destroy the church. It was actually an internal pressure of people who thought it was time for the Christian faith to upgrade, to come to Christianity 2.0. It had been some time uh, from the, the point of Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection. And John was the disciple, the apostle that kind of lived the longest. And so he's now seeing another generation of Christians come up who are quite far removed from the original events of the gospel. And now these, some of them, as some of these teachers, are wanting Christianity 2.0, uh, a Christianity that is improved and more consistent with the logic of current philosophies. And that's what we're finding is the danger, and John wants to warn them to stay true to the faith, the faith that was delivered by the apostles. So John writes to protect the church from these false teachers. And they taught a lot of false doctrine, but one of the big things they were teaching is that they were denying that Jesus had come in the flesh. This is a form called Gnosticism, and that's a, a pretty big catch-all phrase uh, for some of the philosophies that were present during this time. Gnosticism and Gnostics claimed that they had special individual knowledge of the divine, and it was this knowledge that made them spiritually superior to others. And that really comes out in much of the New Testament writings, but especially John contends with these Gnostics. One of the things the Gnostics believed is that the spirit was kind of trapped in the body. And so the idea was to release the spirit from the material world. In fact, the material world is essentially evil and it has to be escaped. We have to escape from this material world. And matter doesn't really matter. 
It's just the spirit realm that matters. And Jesus didn't come with a real material body. He came as a kind of a spiritual being with a virtual body. And John says, no, that's not true. According to the Gnostics, you can do a number of things with your body because remember, it's evil and it actually doesn't matter. So you can either indulge your body, you can eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow your body will die, or you can beat down your body, you can deny your body in order to release the spirit. So you can see how it's a very dangerous teaching and it shows up in lots of different ways, even in the church today. So that's what John is addressing. Some of these Gnostics actually had claimed that they had become so spiritual that they had even escaped sin. And if you continued reading in that passage in 1 John chapter 1, right down to the end, we'll cover this next week a bit more, you'll see that John says, if you say you have no sin, you are deceiving yourself. That's a direct hit toward the Gnostics as he points and contends for the true faith delivered by the apostles. But we want to focus on the first part of this uh, chapter, uh, verses 1 through 7, as we look at it today. And in this first part, John wants to make a very important point against the Gnostics and a very important point that we need to hold on to if we are going to have a confident faith. He says this, Believe me, I was there. Jesus has a body. Jesus has a body. Uh, We saw him, but not only that, We touched him. This is a really important concept for John. It comes out in his gospel. It comes out in his letter writing. This idea of touch, of the physicality of Jesus, not only when he was born and when he died on the cross, but post-resurrection, even when he meets with Thomas uh, in John's gospel, Jesus says, come and touch me. Touch me. I'm real. Uh, Come and, and share breakfast with me. I'm going to eat some fish because I have a body. And this is a really important Christian concept that comes uh, through the teaching of the apostles. So John is saying, look, we know what Jesus looks like. We, we were there. We, we know the color of his eyes and the length of his hair, the things that artists have been wondering about for years. John was one of the guys that saw that. He knows this. He knows how tall Jesus is. He, he knows deeply personal things about Jesus. He knows what he likes to eat. He knows what Jesus is like when he's, you know, tired and maybe a little bit grumpy. He knows if Jesus snores or not when he sleeps. I mean, those seem like silly things. But my point is, he knew the physicality of Jesus very closely. And that's really important in John's gospel. But then, or uh, John's gospel and John's writing. But then John goes on to say, and we know that Jesus was more than just a man. He was more than just a great teacher or a great rabbi. It took us a while to realize that, but we are absolutely confident that Jesus is God in a bod, that Jesus is the infinite life of God in the flesh, the literal flesh and blood. And this is an amazing truth that John wants the church to hold on to. And then John goes one step further. And he says to the church, and he says to you and me, even though you weren't there, even though you weren't there to witness this, to touch Jesus in that physical sense, we want you to share in our confident joy, knowing the truth about Jesus. We want you you to have fellowship with us and fellowship with the Father and the Son through the Spirit. 
this idea of koinonia, this shared experience that even though we weren't there, we can have this confidence in the truth about Jesus. That's really the point that John is wanting to make. So now with a little bit of that background and some of that idea, I want to read those opening lines again, but from the message translation. And I think you'll see how this really comes to life. Listen to what John says, especially to the church, but also to these Gnostic false teachers. From the very first day, we were there taking it all in. We heard it with our own ears. We saw it with our own eyes. We verified it with our own hands. You see that touch again. The word of life appeared right before our eyes. We saw it happen. And now we're telling you in most sober prose that what we witnessed was incredibly this. The infinite life of God himself took shape before us. We saw it. We heard it. And now we're telling you so you can experience it along with us. This experience of communion with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Our motive for writing is simply this. We want you to enjoy this too. Your joy will double our joy. We want you to enjoy this too. John and those who are writing to the church, they want you and me to have that same experience that the original apostles had, that same confidence in the truth about Jesus. We want you to have this confident faith, not an arrogant faith. An arrogant faith places too much confidence in our own knowledge, but a confident faith places our confidence in the truth about Jesus and what he has done for us. That's the kind of faith that John wants us to have. I love the fact that John makes the purpose of his writing really clear whenever he writes. He usually does this toward the end of his writing. We find that in John's gospel, in John chapter 20 and verse 31, he says this, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's purpose of writing the gospel is so that you may believe the truth about Jesus. So if you've never come to a point in your life where you have acknowledged and you've said, I believe that Jesus died and rose again for me, then John's gospel is for you. That's who he's writing to. That's his audience. So that you may come to the knowledge of the truth about Jesus. That's really important. But in 1 John, in this letter, he switches his audience. And that's really important to pick up on. At the end of his writing again in 1 John chapter 5, he says this, I write these things to you who believe, to you who already believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's the, the point of this letter. That's why I think it's so important for us today to have this confident assurance of faith, this confident assurance that we are saved, that we are forgiven, that we are redeemed, that we are safe in God no matter what happens around us. I think many of us over the years, if we've been uh, walking with God for some time or even a short time, sometimes doubts come in. Eric talked about that last week. Sometimes circumstances trouble us or confuse us. Sometimes we hear false teachings. There's lots of other things that can shake our confidence a little bit. So this letter is so important for, for us today and during this time that we might have a confident faith to rest in the knowledge that we are saved because of what Jesus has done for us. So John goes on in this letter 
to point out a number of things that can rob us of this confidence. And that's really what I want to pay attention to over the next few weeks, starting with the first thing that will rob us of our confident faith, and that is living a divided life. When we live a divided life, we are going to lose our confident faith. And John is very concerned about this, and he wants to point it out in this first thing. When we divide our time, when we divide our lives between light and darkness, we will lose that sense of confidence, that joy that's complete, that confidence knowing that we are saved, knowing that we are forgiven, knowing that when we pray, God hears and answers our prayers, that confidence we need in order to witness to others, we will lose it if we live a divided life. John's argument is really simple as we work through this. Basically says this, God is not divided. Therefore, if we are God's children, we should not live divided lives. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. Therefore, we should walk in the light and not in the darkness. Do you get the logic of that, of what he's saying to us? This theme of light and darkness is a huge favorite with John. It's actually all throughout scripture, especially in the New Testament, we find it. Um, But this light stands for a number of things. There's a moral aspect to the light. And the moral aspect is holiness. That's what light speaks to us of. But there's also an intellectual aspect to the concept of light, and that is truth. So moral, holiness, and intellectual truth. That's the idea of light. Darkness, then, is the opposite. Uh, Darkness stands for the moral aspect of evil or sin, and the intellectual aspect of ignorance or not knowing the truth, especially the truth about Jesus. So John wants us to walk in the light, to walk in holiness, and to walk in the truth about Jesus and what he has done for us. That's really important within this letter. So darkness refers to the life that we lived before we believed the truth about Jesus. That's kind of a hidden life or hidden parts of us. It's like Adam and Eve hiding in the garden. There's that darkness that comes from sin, that hiding aspect. Light then refers to walking with confidence knowing the truth about Jesus. That's the forgiven life. That's the free life. And John wants us to walk in that kind of freedom. But John makes it really clear. He's basically saying, you can't have a foot in both worlds. You can't have one foot in darkness and one foot in light. You cannot walk through life that way. It's going to be too complicated. It's going to exhaust you. It's going to trip you up. And it's not uh, true to live that kind of life. You can't straddle the fence on this one. You need to live an undivided life. Remember when I was 18 years old and just about to finish high school is when this truth really sunk in for me. When I came to the realization by God's grace and because of a couple of events that occurred in my uh, life during my grade 12 year, I remember coming to the point where I literally knelt beside my bed and realized that I couldn't straddle the fence on this one. I couldn't keep a foot in the world and a foot in faith. I had to have both feet in. I had to be all in. And I literally said that to God. God, I am all in. Whatever you have for me to do, I will do. And it was a turning point in my life. I wonder if you come to that point in your life. And maybe we need to come to it several times in our lives. When we say, God, we've been, we've been dabbling with the world. We've been dabbling with darkness. 
but we want to walk fully in the light. God is not divided, and so his children should not live divided lives. Well, I think we have to be careful in understanding this because I think we do actually divide our lives up in a number of different ways that are unhealthy and unhelpful. I think we live divided lives when we falsely divide the secular from the sacred. When we say things like worship and prayer and tithing and volunteering at the church are somehow sacred things, while manual labor and school and Doing the laundry and changing diaper are somehow mundane and secular. And we have to do the mundane and the secular so we can support the truly spiritual things that we do in the church. I think that's a, a false dichotomy. That's a false divide that will lead us to live lives that are not whole, not full. Uh, when, when God is only taken out on Sunday or when we only talk about spiritual things within the four walls of the church, then we are reducing our lives and making a compartment for God. That leads us to living a kind of divided life. And that's a Gnostic understanding of the world, where the spiritual is to be preferred over the secular or the mundane. Stop with that divide. See the whole of our lives being offered as an act of worship before God. And then we'll begin to understand what it means to live in the light. But we also live divided lives when we assume the work of Christian witness is simply to save a person's soul, to rescue that eternal bit of them. When we don't think that the gospel has any relevance uh, to the person's physical or social or environmental challenges or needs, when we make that divide between word evangelism and, and the social gospel, it's, it's not a helpful divide at all. And while I think that the word and word evangelism is absolutely essential. There's also needs to be an integration of word and action, word and deed, so that we don't fall into the Gnostic trap of preferring the spiritual over the material. We need to take care of the whole person. That's what the gospel of Jesus is about. It's redeeming the whole person and the whole world. And so that's another way I think we might artificially divide things up between uh, saving a person's soul and taking care of their physical needs. Let's see people as whole people and the gospel as redeeming the whole person. But we especially live divided lives. And I think this is really the point of the passage and the point I want to make this morning. We especially live divided lives when there's a large difference between our private and our public actions. I think this is the biggest challenge for me in reading this passage because it's so easy, isn't it? to put on a show. It's so easy to say the right words and show up wearing the right clothes and show up at the right events and go through all of the actions and everybody thinks that everything is wonderful in our lives. And all the while we are hiding. We're hiding secret sins. We are hiding our brokenness. We are hiding our hurts and our pain because we think that people won't accept us or that we're ashamed to confess it to God or to others. And so we live in this kind of corner of darkness in the reality of our private world. And when we do that, we live divided lives. And we'll never have the full confidence that John wants to have um, for the church as we have confidence walking in the light. I love this quote from uh, Ben Sternke. And he says this, Walking in the light has nothing to do 
with perfect behavior and everything to do with being known. Walking in the light means that we are willing to be known for who we really are, warts, sins, and all. It doesn't mean we have perfect morality, just that we have stopped hiding. I think it was the story of Martin Luther and when he was having his, his portrait done, uh, the first draft of the portrait um, the artist did, Martin Luther looked at it and the artist had obviously tidied up his face a little bit and made him look better than what he was. And Martin Luther said, no, you need to paint me warts and all. That's kind of what it means to be walking in the light, to have that confidence, that confident faith that we can walk because we are forgiven, that we don't need to have hidden parts that we keep from the world or we try to keep from God. Well, the Gnostics believed that they had special knowledge and this special knowledge made them superior spiritually. But John wants us to know that we know God and that knowledge is enough. And he wants us to rest in the fact that God knows us completely and he loves us fully. That's so important in this first letter of John. And there's no standing on the fence between darkness and light. If our joy is to be complete, then we need to have this confident faith, this confidence to walk in the light because we are forgiven by God, not because we are perfect, but because Jesus has forgiven us because of what he did on the cross. So let me ask you a question as we wrap up uh, today's message. Is there a hidden part in your life that you're afraid to show to others? Is there something that you're ashamed to confess before God? The encouragement of this passage is come out of hiding and come into the light of Christ. There's there now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't need to live in the corners. We don't need to live in the shadows. We can live in the light knowing that God calls us to that light. Well, perhaps uh, an ending verse for us uh, that would be appropriate it comes from Psalm 139. I love the character of King David. Uh, David was obviously not perfect. We could list all of his sins. And the reason we know his sins is because he made them public because he knew that he could be forgiven by God. And so David is a great example for us of what it means to walk by faith, to, to be a, a person after God's own heart, not because we're perfect, but because we're willing to walk in the light and have the light of God reveal the dark corners of our lives. So from Psalm 139, let this be our ending verse today. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen.